Welcome back to another episode of the Sounder at Heart podcast. I am Jeremiah O'Shan, and I am joined by former Sounders uh, fitness and analytics uh, guru, we'll call you, oh. uh, Dave Tenney. You're now with the Orlando Magic of the NBA. I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> He's downstairs. Uh, well, there you go. That's, that's the go. magic oh. of live, yeah. of, of quarantining uh, podcasting. But anyway, welcome, Dave. Um, yeah. you've, uh, I, how, I hope you're staying safe. Yes, thank you for having me. One, I'll say that I had several titles when I was at uh, the Sounders. I know. What you just listed was not one of them. <laughs> um, but that's okay. That's okay. Well, let's see. What was so you start? What when you were first hired by the Sounders? What was your title when you were first? Yeah, hired? probably just fitness coach, like head fitness coach or something like that. And then, and then, and then, how did that? And it evolved several times. It felt like your job got bigger and bigger over the years. Yeah, yeah, and, and obviously that's. Well, I was there a long time, uh, nine years. So um, the league evolved, right? The league evolved and clearly um, Adrian invested more heavily in it. We went from a one-man show um, as head fitness coach to a manager of sports science and and fitness, I think, and then performance direct, high performance director at the end. And so, you know, went from a staff of one of me to ending with, you know, the, the group that we had there that was obviously very, very good. And, you know, several have moved on and, you know, Sean and Ravi are still there, but I think, you know, six, seven people. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, again, it's, it shows the evolution of the league. And, you know, and I think one thing we can be proud about is, you know, how Adrian invested in all that right from the very beginning. And so I think we're always at the forefront of growing that, that department. And, and now, I mean, I think, what we were doing probably five years ago is more standard practice across the league now, but I think we are, you know, head and shoulders ahead of where everyone else was doing, you know, based on, you know, how, especially Adrian from the very first day, just, you know, promoted that and, and invested in that. So you, like, I always think that one of the things it's, it's kind of funny to think about it now because you look at, you go to a Sounders training session or we haven't been to one in a month or so (laughs) now, but back when they used to have training sessions, uh, you'd go out there and it would be, you know, there's, there's the 20 odd players, but there's like eight or nine other, uh, people that are right. observing practice or uh, that are taking notes that are attaching, you know, uh, trackable devices. And, you know, there's all, there's, there's drones and there's, broad, yeah. you know, there's all these things. Right. But back in those early days, it was basically you, Tommy Dutra, Ezra Hendrickson, Siggy and Brian and, that was, that was basically it. Yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. I guess Kurt was there too. <laughs> Kurt was there, yeah. And then, and then somewhere along the line, I just got an intern, and the intern did a lot of the data stuff that we had, we began collecting. And then, you know, then we added Ravi in, um, and, and that started changing everything. And then uh, um, I think we had Ravi, you know, at one point Garrison Draper, who's now performance director with the union, and Chad, who's with the uh, um, Colorado Rapids, you know, and obviously three guys that are, have had great successes in, in, in the league. Um, you know, and there was all of us out there doing stuff, just throwing stuff against the wall and, you know, having a environment that helped us all develop, I'm sure. So when you, uh, when you look back on, when, or when you came into this in 2009, you, you came from a soccer background. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I was always and, soccer. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and so, 
but were you and but the state of analytics was very different than what it is now i mean did yeah. you come in originally thinking well we, we got to start incorporating more analytical stuff i know early on a lot of the analytics were pretty pretty focused on like fitness type of stuff but it, it evolved over time yeah yeah i think at first we're looking at heart rate and then running and you're, you're always trying to answer questions i think and then as you develop and evolve, those questions become more complex, right? So I remember the first time where with Ziggy um, using GPS and, you know, Ziggy wanted to know who was working hard, who was not working hard in practice, right? And that was the only question he wanted to answer, right? Like, I want to know the guys are not working hard so we can push them, right? And right. That's, which is fair. Because at first we had heart rate, you know, we found that heart rate, you know, for instance, you'd have <clears throat> Roger Levesque, Roger Levesque is out there running around, his heart rate never goes over 150, and yet he's the guy that's running around the most, you know, so we'd look at the end of the day and you'd have David Estrada and, and, uh, and Roger Levesque who were clearly running more than anyone else in the field in practice, but they didn't have any heart rate response to anything. And Ziggy's like, well, this is not working because it's not telling me what I want to hear. <laughs> I could have told you that with my eyes. Exactly. Yeah. So, so we, we went and got, you know, GPS and, you know, and again, Adrian was, you know, decided to invest in GPS. And we went that route. And then now you can actually see that, Roger and David are, well, they're running more than everyone else, but they're just so fit that there's no real, you know, heart rate response to what they're doing. And now we get that other layer. And then as time goes on, then the next question really is because of that time, right? Players were not able to wear it in the game. So, you know, somewhere between 2015, 2016, then we started um, looking at uh, technology like Metrica, where now you can start quantifying what's happening in the game because you really want to really figure out okay, the practice is fine, but how is this interacting with the game? And so we, we did have, um, you know, match analysis for years, um, had a, a relationship with MLS and a lot of teams used it. And we definitely used match analysis early on. And then again, we were the first club to invest in Metrica, which is a Spanish company, you know, which Ravi would set up the, the uh, camera systems. And now you really get in a really good in-depth technical and physical what's, what's going on in the game. So. And so it, in, if I understand correctly, where your analysis was able to really start to take off was when you were able to, you, like you were collecting all this data for a long time, or not for a long time, for a couple of years. And then when Ravi came on, it was kind of with the idea that he was going to like take this big data and turn it into something that can be processed by the coaches and the coaches can kind of use. Is that a, the correct way of, of summing that up? Um, yeah, Maybe not. yeah, I'd say that. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm trying to think, because uh, that, that came along with, the, you know, the time where more data was available okay. as well, right? So then all the, you know, so then that's a period where we're looking at guys like, you know, Andreas Evanschitz and Nelson Valdez, and we're getting some data from Germany that looks at some running data that now you can compare across the leagues. And now we can see how much those guys were able to do versus other players in the league. Right? So, um, but again, because of the nature of the data coming in different formats, you know, Ravi was, you know, the expert at being able to, you know, kind of normalize that, that data that what Andreas and Nelson were doing in Germany and make that relative to what MLS players were doing. And I think that was one of the, you know, Ravi was one of the first ones in the league, I think, to, to do that. And do, do you feel like that kind of, uh, analysis has ultimately helped the Sounders. I mean, the Sounders have obviously been near 
at or near the top of MLS during this whole time. I mean, how much do you put down? I mean, does it feel like that, that you've been able to see the, the fruits of those labor, that labor in uh, the kind of players you're identifying and, and the kind of players that, you know, what the, you know, the whole process of maybe even lineup selection? Um, obviously, I'm not there now, so I, right. I can speak to now. But yeah, I mean, I think that what what happened and what has happened is you've seen this um, evolution of because you, know, you know I think Chris Henderson you know deserves a lot of credit for going out and you know kind of scouting subjectively what he sees and he's had a lot of success with the guys he's brought back and I think there's there's lots of layers there in terms of like you know Garth making decisions and the, and you know Brian and the coaches looking at players and then Chris you know, traveling all over the world, looking at guys and then, and then Ravi with the more, you know, objective side. Um, and obviously everyone has to agree that, you know, some of the objective metrics they're looking at have value, which I think, you know, I, I'm assuming has, has been done. And so I think what's happened. And again, I think what's, what's cool about the Sounders organization, it's been very organic where Chris scouts, Chris watches, Garth talks, Garth's watching video, Garth's talking to Ravi, Ravi brings in his objective analysis, the coaches watch and they have their opinions. And, you know, and I can tell you that it, it can be a muddy process, really finding agreement within all that. But, but if you look at the results that have come from that, I mean, obviously their, their signings have been you know, overall fantastic. I mean, you'll never get it 100% of the time, but you know, I mean, last year's roster I thought was fantastic looking at it. And, um, and I think that's large in large part to the fact that you have multiple stakeholders all looking from their own perspectives. And while it's a, I'm sure it's a, a controversial process at times, you know, it, it obviously works. So, um, and you know, they all deserve the credit for that. So. so you obviously, you were with the Sounders from 09 to, to 17, September of 17. Uh, you went to the NBA, which it seems like in, in some ways was, um, a natural progression, I suppose, uh, going like to the next, like the NBA is, is at the, the highest level of basketball in the world. It might be one of the biggest uh, yeah. sports leagues in the world, or it is one of the biggest sports leagues yeah. in the world. How has that transition been? And how has the, like, what are some of the things that you, that, that are just different at the NBA aside from it being a different sport, obviously? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I guess one of the decisions that I made was that, you know, I think, Honestly, probably English Premier League and NFL and NBA are probably the three biggest leagues in the world, I'd say. Uh, and to have the opportunity to work in that, I felt like was just beneficial to my overall development, you know, as a practitioner. So, you know, I, I didn't know if I stayed any longer, if I'd get that opportunity anymore. So I felt like for my own career development, it was worthwhile taking a risk to work in a league like that. Um, but, you know, yeah, it's in some ways it's very similar and in some ways it is so different, you know, and I think just, the, uh, <clears throat> it just starts with the games. I think the rhythm, the rhythm of everything, you know, people always ask me, it's one of the most asked questions I get is, Oh, how's uh, NBA different from MLS? And it's, you know, light years different in a lot of ways, but I would say like first and foremost, it's, especially with what I do, you want to get into a rhythm and how you want to always evaluate how players respond to the rhythm of what they do, how coaches respond to the rhythm of what they do. And, you know, and, and, and you get so used to an MLS, these kind of weekly cycles, you know, that it didn't take long until you realize that, you know, 
w one game in MLS has a certain amount of meaning. Um, and every game in the NBA at the end of the day is important, especially if you are, we are, we're always kind of that seven to 11 seed in one of the divisions, you know, you can't really take games off in the NBA. Um, but, but you have to get over every game quickly, right? So I think that's right. what I learned right away is that we often have, um, you know, five games in eight days. Can, our heavy, in our heaviest loads, we're playing five games in eight days over and over and over in the heaviest uh, periods. And if you know you're going to play a game and the next seven days you have four games, well, you could have a really bad loss and you got to go it over a quick, you know, and that's what I think I've learned from the coaches in the NBA, like the really good coaches at the NBA, you can have, you know, we've had several times where you're, you're up by eight points with three minutes left and you lose and it just feels like tragic and it feels awful. And somewhere between the sideline and the locker room, the really good coaches already move on. They already kind of psychologically, okay, got to move on. And it's that decision of like, when do I really climb on my team and when do I just back off? Cause we've got four more games in the next seven days. And so I, I would, the sense I get now, I'm not necessarily the biggest NBA fan, but the, the sense I get is that the NBA has been pretty progressive in terms of its adoption of analytics, yes. um, yep. at least relative to the world of pro sports. Um, has it, has your, has that impacted the way that, the information that you provide is absorbed and like, it doesn't make it easier on your job or is there just a totally different kind of ask that they want from someone in your position? It's a good question. Yeah. I mean, I think that the type of analytics that they're providing is so different. Right. And so, you know, it's a, if you think like the, you know, the second spectrum data that's provided now is just some really granular data on defending and shooting percentage when guy is, when the guy's up close, you know, when, when someone's within six feet or outside of six feet, and players can have drastically different shooting percentages depending on where their pressure is. And you can really get some good data on that. Uh, and that's less, I think of what we do. Again, I think what we do is this, taking these athletes over 82 games in six months and how do you kind of keep them on the, you know, on the rails without falling off um, and looking at some of their minutes played and workloads and what happens with some of the, you know, the workloads over time. Um, and so there's probably, there's less interaction at times with the coaches around that data because, um, because that's not changing anything. Again, if you're a team that's where we are, um, where you're always fighting for a playoff spot, you need all your, you know, all your guys every game like you know the, the big topic is load management in the nba and i can say like there's just there's very few teams that can afford to load manage over an nba season because you just can't afford to give guys off you know yeah i mean it does it's i guess it's one of the things that maybe you would hear about with a team like the warriors who would say like oh well we we can cruise through this portion of our season because we built this cushion but I guess maybe for a team like you, it's, it's yeah. not as what easy I, as saying like, oh, well, we'll just give players X, Y, and Z a week off. Yeah. But what I will say is that our head coach has, you know, Steve Clifford is our head coach and he's been fantastic to work with because he's seen everything, right? He's, he worked for both Van Gundy's. He, you know, he worked for Mike D'Antoni with the Lakers and one of the Laker teams that kind of 
fell apart in the playoffs and he has seen everything and he has seen the wheels come off a group, you know, and, and kind of lose the entire season or lose an entire playoffs because they just weren't physically there. And so if I were ever to say to him, this guy just can't go tonight, there's never pushback. Never. It's just, mm. okay. Yeah. Cause it's not worth one game is not worth risking falling off the rails. Um, there's not one game that's that important that we cannot make up for if we win four or five games in a row. Right. So um, that's a really different, I think, viewpoint of him knowing like this, this, this is the long haul, right? We gotta, we gotta keep these guys going on the train tracks and you use the train track analogy, but I don't know why, but we got to keep these guys on the tracks for 82 games. And if a guy's got to sit out, he's got to sit out. Like there's not, there's not one game that's more important than the other. And so um, there's really, he's, you know, he's been obviously great to work with from that standpoint of just being able to see the big picture. Cause again, like he's lived, he's lived, you know, that one, there's the one Lakers playoff series where they all, you know, they all got hurt and um, really struggled. And, you know, I think he's been in different scenarios like that, whether it was Orlando or New York Knicks as an assistant coach. So he's seen so much that um, he understands kind of that long-term response and how to keep guys right over long periods of time. Do you get a sense that, that and I guess maybe not NBA coaches in general, but the coaches that you've worked with at least are uh, take, like is there some of that mindset that is similar or different in ways that are in, like that are interesting between, you know, like a, a Siggy or, or a Brian Schmetzer? Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's, again, I think that's, it's, there's a little bit of apples and oranges, right? Because again, I think the, the, the relationships are different. Like the NBA relationships are just different when you have, you know, your, your average player is making eight to $10 million in the NBA, right? And your, your superstars are making, like I think our highest paid players making 25 million a year. Um, and so the layers of the, you know, the agents that go around the players, like it's a very different, it's a different dynamic. And, and, and then to be fair, just the size of the roster makes it different as well. And I often, you know, say to people that, you know, if, kind of shocking. If you're in the soccer world, it's shocking that, uh, for, for away games, there's three different buses that go to games, right? Depending on when your warm-up time is, when your shooting time is before a game. And so there's very little at times that is um, everyone together, right? You don't go on the bus together before the game. Um, your times together as a team are in the team plane, from the team plane to the hotel, from the arena to the airport. But there's very little like you know, pregame meals together the night before the game or, you know, everyone sits together the afternoon of the game or everyone's on the bus on the way to the game. Like it's a, it's a far more individualized hmm. um, environment, you know, and so how the coach manages all of those individual relationships, you know, and if you think, you know, every, I think, the, you know, one of the other big differences is how much coaching, there's far more coaching that happens in the NBA level than anyone actually thinks right and so a large majority of the nba teams where the head coach is calling every offensive play you know that's in the half court the entire game which means he's calling plays for specific players every time they're going up the court so he's making that decision of who should get the ball and who should get the shot you know every time they go up, they go up the court and so that that again creates a different dynamic of 
how much a coach runs plays for certain players and, you know, and all that, which is just different than what, uh, you know, an MLS coach would face. Right. Well, one of the other things I was wanted to pick your brain about is, is you're in a position that it seems to be on everyone's mind right now, uh, at least to the degree that sports is on their mind, right? Is how you're keeping, how you're keeping players fit right now. I mean, I would imagine broadly speaking, it's a similar challenge that you're facing as what coaches in every sport are facing and that there's not that players can do their individual work. And I guess maybe there's a little bit more individual work you can do in the NBA where you can shoot baskets or whatever. And there's not really an equivalent of that in soccer, but what, how, what's been your approach to uh, dealing with players and, and how much con like, how is that, how have you been managing this period in terms of uh, the fitness aspect of things? Yeah, well, I mean, well, I think first the, the difference, especially the difference with the NBA and the MLS is, you know, we were 75, 80% of the way through our season when all this happened. And so we actually, this, this break has not been bad because it's allowed guys to refresh themselves, mm-hmm. right? Versus, I mean, I think MLS is actually the worst possible time. You're actually ending a preseason when everyone's supposed to be peaked with their fitness. And then this break happens. Like there couldn't be right. any any worse, you know, versus our side where it's, it's okay. Like for them to have two weeks off, that's, that's actually okay. Cause they're all kind of beat up after playing, you know, 55 to 60 games. So um, that's, that's one thing to consider. I think too, not knowing when you're starting again becomes a lot bigger issue. And I think what I see across a lot of the sports sports leagues is kind of like this panic that everyone has to stay fit. Right, we've got to get filmed to guys, we've got to stay fit, we've got to stay on it. Well, what if you're not playing till July? Right. You know, I think that's again where our, our head coach has been really smart and clever with his experience and the talks we've had is that you know you can lose guys, you can lose guys in July if we do too much in April. Right? Like if we overload our guys physically and with film the first week of April, they're gonna be so burned out by the time they get to July that that we just might not be able to reach them again. So now having said that, we have to make some assumptions on when you're actually coming back. So you can begin a ramp up and hopefully within the next two, three, four weeks, we get a better sense of when all this is going to start back up again. But, you know, it's one, I think with everyone inside, it's makes it difficult. Um, Again, the NBA, the other big difference I think too, is that the NBA is a highly individualized um, space and so you can do some small group things together and we can get on zoom together with a couple small groups but you know I think in soccer you're seeing you know like the entire team does a spin class together or something like that right. you know, that's that's great and that's good team building you probably see less of that in the NBA because one guy will do a spin class another guy doesn't want to do a spin class but the other guy wants to do something else that's really good and you know I think it's again each player becomes his own entity into himself that we have to figure out and get our like finger on for what that guy needs. Um, and so I think that's the challenge, you know, everything around the NBA is challenge around individualizing every different player, you know, on his own kind of developmental program and maintaining that over the year. Yeah. You know, it, it is interesting. If, when I talked, when we last talked to Brian uh, about, their plan, it did seem like he had a similar perspective as you, which is we don't want to be sending out like 
loads of film to these players and we don't want to be like we, we want to keep them involved and keep them engaged but unless we know until we get a sense of when they're coming back we don't want to ramp up too quickly because yeah. there's a danger in in over like overdoing it just as much as there is a danger in not yeah. doing enough i suppose and then there's the whole psychological side too which i think people don't talk enough about like you don't talk about what's the stress and anxiety of like staying home day after day after day. And then if you're putting film and these things on top of that, like maybe it's good for a guy that has a family, like he just has to take care of his family. Right. And then there's kind of this low level, there is this, this low level stress and anxiety of, of this unknown and uncertainty that we all have to deal with. And what's the cost of that? No, that, that's a, that's a great point. You know, I like, I think of, you know, because I, I'm in contact with them, but like, you know, Will Bruin, who is a, a player who's, you know, he's got a wife and kid at home yeah. who need, like if he's at home, it's like when you're, when you're a parent, you've got the same stresses. It's not like these guys are just sitting there by themselves looking for something to do. It's like things occupy their time that yeah. aren't necessarily easy to just be like, no, I'm going to watch two hours of game film and break it down and do all this yeah. other stuff. But again, you might have a 21 year old that just wants to play video games 12 hours a day right. you want to give him something a little bit more substance so everyone is different and that's i think that's that's the challenge in all this so uh just also wanted to get your perspective on you know you, the nba seemed to be very much kind of the I, I don't know if canary in the coal mine was the right word but it did seem like when the nba shut down essentially or on a lot of what happened on the night of march 11th yeah. seemed to be around the nba uh, you guys had a game the, the day before. You weren't playing that that day, if that's if I'm remember if I'm correct. Yep. Yep. Uh, but what was that like for you to kind of see that day unfolding? And did you have a sense that it was all inevitable, and it just so happened that the timeline got sped up, or I don't know? I just what, what was your perspective on on how that day unfolded? I think there was this kind of, I think there was this assumption that there was something there, but it was not as big as we all quite realized yet. So I think there was already some some murmurs around, okay, well, you know, this is going on, but maybe we're going to have to transition to some empty arena games and we should all be prepared, you know, for some empty arena games. And we are about to, that was on a Wednesday. On Friday, we are supposed to play in, in uh, Brooklyn, I think. And um, no, Detroit, we're supposed to be in Detroit on Friday. And and our primary care physicians were going to go with us to make sure that we had strategies around, you know, being safe and, um, uh, you know, being aware of, of, of the dangers of, you know, how, how something could be transmitted and check our processes. Um, but then at any time, we're going to go to empty arena games. And then all that happened on Wednesday. And it was just kind of the shock of like, okay, now everything's changed. Like it's all changed. Mm -hmm. So they already started, you know, social distancing. They were not going to let reporters in the locker rooms anymore. And, you know, um, you saw the stuff with Rudy, Rudy Gobert kind of poking fun at that at the, you know, at the press conference he gave in the, in the, in the morning shoot around. And, um, it, uh, yeah, I think it just all just escalated so much faster than any of us thought that it was. And we just didn't think that, you know, the NBA was going to be the first to really experience that. Yeah, it was, I mean, for me as someone who was watching it, kind of unfold it was it was like head spinning to yeah. it went from being like okay well you know this is a this is you know maybe a little scary i guess but ultimately yeah. you know leagues like the nba especially are just gonna play in empty stadiums and it won't be yeah. that big of a deal and 
then all of a sudden it was like, no, sports are done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at least for now, uh, as, as someone who is in the science field, have you taken any particular interest in, in how, like the, in, in how this is developed, not necessarily from a sociological standpoint, but from like, <laughs> like, a looking at the, the, the disease itself or anything? Oh yeah. I mean, I think it's, uh, it's been a fascinating study, especially as we look at, uh, um, the statistic side of it, you know, I will say like, I've actually watching governor Cuomo's uh, presentations in New York city, you know, his press conferences every day, just the, the amount of data and statistics <laughs> and the PowerPoints. Like I find myself being just, you know, encapsulated by how he presents. Like he's clearly rehearsed it. He knows all the data, you know, visualizations he's got, he knows all the statistics and it's, I feel like just watching his press conferences really gives you a sense of kind of where we're at with, with everything and so it's uh yeah whoever knew that data analysts would all of a sudden be like the uh like would be getting their day in the sun the way i mean this is amazing like uh i i don't think i ever would have imagined that so much uh like project like data projections this is you know it's even on a different scale than like elections i mean you see like these numbers that are being spit out and it's and it's kind of amazing to see to see i would imagine uh, from a statistical perspective just to see how they're modeling all this stuff and yeah yeah. And, um, anyway, it's just been, it's been amazing. Uh, Dave, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this, um, giving us perspective on, on things. Yeah, um, for sure. and I, hopefully you're staying safe. Uh, is how are things in Orlando right now? Well, I mean, rel- relative to other places in, in the, uh, in the country they're they're not bad. Um, Orlando's, uh, Orange County here in Orlando's, um, pretty decent, you know, and, and we're lucky where we live and we have a, uh, <clears throat> like 150 yard oval of grass right out in front of our, our front nice. door. So we do, uh, afternoon skill sessions, you know, every day. So my wife and I were coaching our U10, uh, daughter's team, um, <laughs> this season. So, you know, it was, uh, getting my, my whistle and cones back out. Um, so we're, uh, we got to post our videos. We've got our own U10 girls group that we've got to post technical uh, sessions to for the, uh, for the team. So um, that's been, that's been fun and good. I mean, I think, you know, the biggest thing is just, it's the NBA is brutal in terms of the travel and the schedule and, you know, how much we're gone. And, you know, um, the reality is there is the, the blessing of being able to spend this much time with your family. Cause otherwise we'd never be able to spend, you know, this much time together. So, you don't really want to have a pandemic to force that, but no. uh, yeah, but it's uh, but there is, there is a silver lining, I guess as well. So. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, and I'm glad to hear that. It sounds like you're, you're, you're managing this all well. Uh, yeah. so, uh, well, I appreciate you having me and catching up. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, stay safe, uh, Dave. And, uh, yeah, you're listening to the Sandra Art podcast. <laughs> Thank you.